Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Yet other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's a delight to see all of you. Can I pray for us real quick? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are new to All Saints, but if you've been here very long at all, you'll know that I grew up in Oklahoma. You'll also know that Oklahoma is a strange place. For example, all three airports in the Oklahoma City area, the International One, the Regional One, and the Air Force Base, they're all named after people who died in plane crashes. Now, why would you do that? I mean, think about that. Including Will Rogers, who died in 1935. He was a humorist, a writer, a statesman. And he said so many things that are still relevant today. For example, one of them, he says, the country has come to feel the same when Congress is in session as when a baby gets hold of a hammer. So there's that. And then he says, and this kind of pertains to Ukraine maybe, he says, diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you find a rock. And then there are three kinds of men, one that learns by reading, the few who learn by observation, and the rest of them who have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. And growing up in Oklahoma, I might know something about that. But anyways, none of these quotes are actually what made me think of Will Rogers, but this one in our passage If you don't like the weather in Oklahoma or in Texas, wait five minutes and it will change. And that quote came to mind because of this word immediately that was just read by Josh in our gospel passage. Each of these four soils in this passage represent four types of people in their response to Jesus and to the word about him. And the first is like a path hardened by foot traffic foot traffic of the world, all of the messages, the words, the images, the activity, the prerogatives, the pressures of this world. So influenced is this type of person that their hearts become hardened like foot upon foot upon foot on dirt so that the gospel like a seed can't penetrate and sink in and they never become a Christian. But the second and third type are those who do become a Christian, but only for a while, the text says. And the word immediately there in verse five describes the second type of soil. And I've told you before when I preached on this that when it was translated by Martin Luther into German, he translated this word immediately as Wetterwindich in German, which is a compound word. Wetter means weather and wind means change. We get our word wind from it. So weather changing people, people for whom the gospel and the word of Jesus is just one wind that blows upon them for a while, moves them for a while until another stronger wind blows them in a different direction. So like weather vane type people, like a weather vane on top of a building blowing this way and that way. And the gospel sinks in, but it never takes deep root. 
to the point where their lives are changed and they continue on. And I want to ask the question this morning, what, what is necessary for us to become good soil, like the fourth soil? In other words, what must happen to us for the gospel to sink in deeply into us and actually change us? Because Paul tells us here at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. And so two points this morning, very simply, what we must release, what we must release or give up. And then secondly, what we must embrace. First of all, what we must release. You may have noticed that our Philippians reading that Bill read for us, it begins rather ominously. Speaking of those, and this is my translation, those whose end is destruction, whose God is the belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who fixate on earthly things. And Paul, several times throughout this letter, has spoken about glory, and here he speaks about glory again. He does so throughout the book, and I've returned to it several times, and I've emphasized for you what glory in the Bible is. What it especially is, as I've told you, is weight. It's weightiness, it's significance, it's importance, it's worth, it's beauty, or even weightiness in beauty. And back in chapter two, Paul speaks about empty glory, this compound word, empty glory. And it gets translated as conceit or vanity, but the same idea is here when he says glory that becomes shame. We could say weightiness that becomes emptiness. And think about that, weightiness that becomes emptiness. And I led a funeral this past week on Tuesday. It was for a friend. It was a hard funeral. Uh, not a close friend, but a friend nonetheless, who I know through my youngest son. He was about my age. He died tragically. And as Josh mentioned, we're going to have Will Hendricks's funeral this coming Wednesday. Not a tragic death, but sad and something to mourn all the same. Will lived to be 86, riding motorcycles until the very end, even after he was on 24-hour oxygen, somehow still riding motorcycles. And so, which is amazing, we'll celebrate his life on Wednesday. But all funerals have a way of amplifying what Paul is talking about here when he speaks about weightiness that becomes emptiness. Because at funerals, we offer eulogies. Eulogy is this Greek word that means good word, literally. And that's what we do. Friends, family members stand up and they speak a good word about the person who has died, the best word that they can think of in order to put this person's true worth before everyone so that they can enjoy it and honor it and honor the Lord who is at work in them. And so here's my question for us all. And maybe I'm asking this question just because this sermon comes in between two funerals for me. And that is, what will people say about us? What will people say about us at our funerals? Regardless of how young or old you may be, what will they say? What will the good words about you be? In other words, will what you hold on to now as weighty become emptiness on that day? Because there's an embrace of emptiness that, that causes a conflict here in Paul. This is a passage about conflict. And it's this emptiness that's causing it. Paul inserts this very sharp contrast at the end of verse 19, the beginning of 20. Maybe you see it there. At the end of that fourfold description of those for whom the word of Jesus never fully sinks in in a deep way, he says they fixate on earthly things. And then he speaks about heaven. He speaks about our citizenship is in heaven. So earthly things versus a heavenly citizenship. And, and now why would he use that language? Why would he speak about that? It's a particular word for this particular church because Philippi was a Roman colony. And that might not mean much to us now. There's not too many colonies left. But in 42 BC, about 100 years before this letter was written, there was a great battle there in Philippi in the midst of this civil war that had erupted after Julius Caesar's death. And the battle 
of the victors of the battle, Octavian and Anthony, Antony actually, they didn't want to take their soldiers and their massive armies back to Rome. They didn't want a big giant army sitting around their capital city just waiting for an insurrection to happen. And so they gave them land in Philippi and all the soldiers stayed and it became a Roman colony. That means it was ruled at a distance from Rome. It wasn't locally ruled. It was meant to be a little Rome in another location. And these soldiers, they had different beliefs and customs and practices. They had different rights. And the point is, is that there in Philippi, there were people who were not Greek, but they were Roman. They weren't local. They were transplants. And in Austin, Texas, we understand transplants. How many of y'all just moved from California? Actually, don't answer that. Or New York or wherever it may be. But we understand transplants. And transplants have a different authority, especially in this context. Different culture, different customs, different language, different attire, different primary allegiance and love. And that's why he uses this. He's setting up a contrast and even a comparison, not only between a contrast between heaven and earth, but a comparison for what it means, what it's like to be a Roman living in Philippi and what it is like for a Christian to live here on earth now. He's asking the question very implicitly, where does your true allegiance lie? Does it lie with God in heaven or with your belly here on earth? And it's a hard question for us to answer because of where we live and this, this place we call Austin, Texas, because people, generally not all people, but many people, many of us, we live good, easy, even great lives, comparatively comfortable lives, successful lives with all sorts of connection to influence and power. Austin's not exactly the horn of Africa. Are y'all aware of what's going on in the horn of Africa right now? There's this this ongoing drought in countries like Ethiopia and Somalia and Kenya and Sudan. The worst drought in 60 years happened in 2011 and now it's back. And it's been going for three years and experts say if it goes into four years, it'll be catastrophic. It'll be catastrophic famine that the region has never known. And so everyone's fleeing the Horn of Africa. They're all leaving their countries. They're trying to move to a different place. Austin, on the other hand, was recently crowned the number one global city to move to. Not, not the number one American city to move to, but it supplanted London as the number one city in the world right now that people are moving to. Everyone's fleeing other places in the world and they're all moving here because life is good and easy comparatively here. So it's a hard question for us to truly honestly answer and to say, where does your true allegiance lie? Because in a place like Austin, Texas, as I often say, every weeknight for some is like a weekend and every weekend is like a holiday. So where does your true allegiance lie? And what would you offer in support of your answer, whatever that answer might be? Would you offer your body as support to your answer? Because Paul speaks about the body right after he speaks about citizenship. So what would... What do, we, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? How, how do we exercise? How do we party? What about our sexual lives? Would we offer any and all of that and everything about our bodies as support to where our allegiance lies? Because he speaks here, he sets up another contrast. He speaks about our lowly bodies versus those bodies that are going to be glorious bodies, resurrected bodies. And again, I'm in between two funerals, so I'm thinking about this, but do you know that that's what the scriptures teach? Do you know that that's what we mean when we say each and every week that we believe in the resurrected, resurrection from the dead? That someday God will raise our bodies, lowly bodies that have died, and he will return our very souls into our bodies when he returns. 
And these dying, lowly bodies will become glorious, resurrected bodies. The same body, but unimaginably and un unbelievably different in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, but it'll be like Jesus's resurrected body. And Paul's point in connecting heaven and our bodies and setting up that contrast is to say, don't make your belly your God. Don't make your dying, lowly body as it now is before it's transformed your God. Honor it, care for it, protect it, protect other people's bodies, but don't worship them. Don't make your true allegiance and seek to satisfy all of the cravings of your current body as it now is. Because there's a way of holding on to earthly things. And right now our current bodies as they now are, they're earthly things. There's a way to hold on to earthly things that prevent us from actually laying hold of Jesus. And so he says, let go of whatever that might be for you. Release it so you can lay hold on of something greater which is our second point, what it is that we have to embrace. And notice, Paul gets very personal here in chapter four. Did you notice that? He mentions two people by name. Now, think about that for a second, because this wasn't a personal letter. It wasn't written to one person. It was written to the church. It was supposed to be read before the church. So he mentions this conflict. Then he mentions the two people who are embroiled in it by name. Now, imagine if I did that this morning. All the things that I know as a pastor, imagine... If I listed off a few names, it's in the Bible. I mean, there's biblical warrant here for, I've just got a short list. I'll just take a moment to, no, I wouldn't ever do that. But this passage is about a conflict and Paul very helpfully doesn't specify the conflict. He does name names, but he doesn't specify the conflict. And that allows us to see any conflict, any difficulty relationally that we have with anyone else to see ourselves in this and apply this to our lives. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. Did you notice that he uses the same word with both names? He doesn't just say, I entreat Yodia and then mention Syntyche. He mentions both. And we could probably translate that word a little bit stronger and say exhort or employ or implore. But he's, what he's doing by, by saying the exact same thing to both is he's saying, I'm not taking sides in this. I'm not saying who's more right and who's more wrong because that's what we want. That's what so many who come to me and other pastors want. They want a verdict. They want us to say, you're more right and you're more wrong. And so you need to do this and you need to receive that. And he doesn't do that. He can't do that. And so often we can't do, I can't do that. We want that, but we can't have that because there's so much wrong, there's so much sin, there's so much brokenness, there's so much vanity and cling to earthly things all around that we, just like Paul, have to entreat everyone involved equally. Entreat them equally. And what does he entreat them to do? Did you notice that? What he says for these two women to do in verse two? He says for them to agree in the Lord. Now what he's not doing is he's not asking them to agree about the situation, the conflict, because that's not possible. The word agree is a word that Paul uses throughout this letter, 10 different times, in fact. And this is the solution to all conflict between Christians. This one word, it is the solution to any and all conflicts between Christians, because what he does in chapter two, he uses it three different times. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, same word. And then he says, having the same love, having the same soul, thinking the same thing. Same word again. And then he says, have this mind 
between yourselves. Same word. Have this mind between yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe what? He goes on to describe Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done by emptying all his true glory, not seeking after empty glory, becoming a human, becoming a slave, dying for all of us. So Paul isn't saying agree about the conflict. He is saying agree about who Jesus is. Have the same mind about Jesus. You'll never agree about the conflict. It's so rarely possible, but you can agree about who Jesus is and what he has done. And that can overwhelm and overshadow whatever conflict that you might be in. Whatever it is, because there's someone, there's something and someone far greater than whatever conflict that you face that, is, that binds you together and can never actually fully and completely tear you apart. So great and glorious is he. And some of you are in very, very intractable conflicts right now. And you're not agreeing about anything. You can agree about Jesus. Remember what I often tell you sin is. Sin is a power. It is an alien, invasive, spiritual power that seeks to pull apart that which God has joined together, whatever it may be. People, families, friends, whatever it may be, seeks to pull apart what God has joined together. And it makes us self-absorbed and self-fixated and self-protective and self-consumed, especially with our own sense of our honor and our own image or our own supposed rightness. It convinces us that we alone are right and everyone else, all other people, God himself is wrong. We're right and we need vindicated. And friends, listen to me. Being seen now in this life as right is something you're gonna have to let go of if you're truly gonna embrace the gospel. Being seen as right by others, being seen as right in your own mind is something you're gonna have to let go of if you're ever going to fully and truly embrace the gospel. It's gonna sink deeply into your life. You have to make a decision, in other words, and I tell this to folks all the time. At some point, you're gonna have to make the decision, do you wanna be seen as right or do you wanna be in the relationship? Because you can't hold on to both. And it's true of so many of our relationships and conflicts with other people, but it's also true of our relationship with God. We can't hold on to our own sense of rightness and grab a hold of him. And there's an old illustration that I heard years and years ago. I'm not even sure when, maybe in college. I'm not even sure how true it is, but some of the best illustrations are just kind of true. Anyways, in 19, I've traced it back to 1974 in this novel, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Priesig. Maybe you've read that. It's a weird book. But anyways, in this book, he talks about farmers in South India catching monkeys who are stealing their rice. And he calls it the, South, the old South Indian monkey trap. And what it is, is there's, they take a coconut and they hollow it out and they, 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 they cut out a small hole and then they chain this coconut to a pole and they fill it with rice. And the hole is just small enough and just large enough where the monkey can reach their hand in and they could pull it out, but they can't pull it out if they grasp hold of the rice because they can't get their clenched fist out. And by refusing to let go of the rice, they trap themselves there. And in that conflict that you face, and some of you face one right now, and if you don't, you will, you need to ask how firmly are you grasping and gripping hold of your own sense of rightness? If you're gonna remain in the relationship and have any sense of forgiveness and reconciliation, you're gonna have to let go. You're gonna have to let go of your sense of rightness. Because again, you can't grasp both 
the gospel and your rightness. And if you do lay hold of it, if you do let go of it, you can begin to lay hold of Jesus in ways that you never have before. And that can set not and will set not only your relationship with him right and begin to transform it, but other relationships as well. You'll begin to be able to forgive, to be able to forgive others for what it is that they've done to you, to stop punishing them with an equal amount of punishment that they inflicted upon you. You'll begin to forgive yourself as well. And stop demanding that, that everyone else agree with you about whatever caused the conflict. And you can both begin to agree about the Lord. It's possible for Christians. And then you can find peace because you can at least agree that he loves you both. He loves the broken. He loves the brokenhearted. We, we, we sang of that earlier. He loves those who have failed and who have done wrong and who have hurt and are hurting and he can heal you both. He can forgive you both. He can heal you both. He can change you into people who don't demand their rights, but empty out their lives for the sake of others, because that is what God in Christ has done for us. We can agree about that. And before I close, I imagine that some of you are thinking, Tim, I can't do that. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what's been done to me. I simply can't do that. And you're right. You can't. That's why Paul says pray. He says pray, think, practice. Verse six, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray. Friends, sometimes conflicts come into our life. The Lord allows, even brings conflicts into our lives in order that we might go to him, in order that we might be driven to him and pray and learn to pray. And then he says think in verse eight, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, listen to these words. Whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things. Do we think on things like that? Is that what gets put before us through the cable news channels that we listen to? Through the Twitter feeds that, that come to us continually? Through the Instagram feeds that we look at? Or would we flip those words, whatever's false, disgraceful, wrong, obscene, scandalous, shameful, vile, intolerable. Words, images, ideas, message, they come at us constantly in this culture. We have to reset our minds. We have to create new habits of mind that are set upon beautiful and good things. I tell you this often, but you will have one word. Everyone has one word that is primary. That is the primary word that animates their life. One word, one message. We can't not have, we were made for a word. We will find that word. And it will come from news or politics or people or friends or social media or whatever it is. And we'll think upon it and we'll think upon it and we'll think upon it. We'll dwell upon it. And then we'll practice it. We'll put it into practice. It will get lived out in our daily life. And so what is it for you? And why not make it Jesus? Why not? Why not be good soil? Why not find the peace that he promises here by letting go of those earthly things that you know you need to let go of? Every single one of us here has something right now that we need to let go of. We need to let go of it. It's trapped us. We need to let go of it to pull our hand out so that we might more fully lay our hands upon him, the very, our very heart, and be changed therein. So whatever it is for you, let go. Let go. And agree about Jesus, because whatever is happening in your life right now, whatever difficulty, whatever conflict, 
whatever sadness, if you will agree about Jesus, Paul says the peace of God will guard you. The peace of God will guard you because of what he says at the very end. Because the God of peace will be with you. If you agree about the Lord, the God of peace will be with you. You'll know peace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us to be people of peace, people like you, people who give up our own sense of rightness. And we do so because what Paul says, that the Lord is at hand and at some point everything will be known. And Father, so may we agree in the Lord about who Jesus is and may we be different therein because of it. We pray in his name. Amen.